So, um, as if it wasn't bad enough that we lost an hour of sleep, I got up at like 12.30, convinced it was time to get up. I was particularly foggy. I'm standing at the coffee machine, which I've turned on, and I'm shaking my head going, wow, it's going to be even harder to start today than I thought. Thankfully, at some point, I looked at the microwave, and I see the clock, and I'm like, 12.30, 30. Oh, the clocks are wrong, though. All the clocks are wrong. And then I go, they're not that wrong. I mean, maybe it's, did Sherry change the clocks? Is it 11.30? Is it 1.30? When do they change? Yeah. So eventually I go, it doesn't matter. Go back to bed. And uh, so I did. And welcome to those who are joining us now again at the 01. Uh, so Crossroads, Highland Park, Vernon Hills, and after a few years of not having it at the 01. So today we're going to be thinking about peace as in uh, inner peace, as in peace of mind, as in contentment, as in a, a quiet heart, as in a non-anxious soul, as in uh, turning down the anxiety and the chatter and finding a subtleness, a contentment. And this is the topic for two reasons. First of all, it's the topic because... Uh, we are driven by anxieties and fears and a lack of contentment. Uh, we chase after things that we think are going to give us that sense of subtleness and calmness and, okay, I'm fine. And so people think that that's going to come with different things. It's going to come with more money. It's going to come with a different house. It's going to come with a bigger title. It's going to come with another degree. It's going to come when we win this, this championship. It's going to whatever people think all kinds of things, and we chase these things thinking what I'm after is this. No, what really what we're after is a sense of well-being, a sense of contentment, the ability to sleep through the night. Given a choice between having this title or this amount of money or this new job and not having contentment or having the contentment, the peace of mind, but not having these things, if we have any amount of self-awareness, what we're after is this, not this. Matter of fact, it's not just that I can show you people who have all these things and are not content, like whatever you think you need, I can show you people that have those things but are not content. I can show you people who have only what you, who think that if they only had what you had, they would be content. All right, so we don't, we're looking at this because we are driven by these things and we don't always understand what we're being driven by. The second reason we're looking at this topic is because Jesus talks about it here in John chapter 16. So this is, uh, this is called the farewell discourse. John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 is called the farewell discourse. And uh, these chapters, uh, it, we've been looking at, this is I think this is the 10th sermon in this 19-week series. It's all sort of coordinated to end when we get to Easter. So we're in the second half of John's gospel, which means it's the last week of Christ's life, and we're marching towards the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we've got this all syncopated so that it's going to happen in that way. 
we're looking at this, and we've been through a number of teaching passages. This is mostly, the, the second half of John is mostly, not exclusively, didactic. So you've got narrative passages in which you have a narrator. Uh, uh, so in this case, John, who's telling us what happens. And you learn by looking at how people respond to what happens. You learn by their example, or you learn not to do what they did, whatever. So there's narrative passages. And then there's also didactic passages. So there's things where we, uh, we learn because of teaching. So in uh, Greek, the word uh, didactic comes from, the, the, comes from the Greek word didache or, or didakos, from which we get this idea of learning or teaching. And so we're looking at passages uh, in, in the didactic passages, which was most of, of all of the the letters, so all, you know, Romans and, and all the letters that Paul wrote, other letters that Paul wrote, and the letters that James wrote, and the letters that John wrote, and the letters that people wrote, those are mostly teaching. It's mostly straight sort of discourse. Uh, but we've got that kind of teaching that comes in the Gospels where Jesus uses a parable or he gives a sermon or he's just talking to his disciples. So the farewell discourse, John 13 through 17, is Jesus teaching the disciples shortly before his death and resurrection. So this is the last stuff. So John chapter 17, which is still to come in, this, uh, in the farewell discourse, John chapter 17 is all this high priestly prayer. It's where we listen in to Jesus praying to God the Father. There's no reason for us to think that the disciples knew about what Jesus prayed until John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get sort of, we get uh, an opportunity to see Jesus processing what's going on just in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he goes uh, to his death. So what we're looking at today is, is in essence the last things that Jesus says to his followers before he is arrested. So this is a general giving the last marching orders to the troops before uh, he leaves them. So I'm reading in John chapter 16. I'm going I'm to begin with verse 16. Uh, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you, um, you will see me. So he's talking about his death and resurrection. You, in a little while you won't see me, and then you will see me again. Death and resurrection. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me uh, no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and uh, because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by, uh, by this? Uh, what does he mean by a little while? We didn't understand, we don't understand what he's saying. So, uh, this phrase, a little while, is, is uh, found in the Old Testament, several places. Isaiah uses it, Jeremiah uses it, Hosea uses it. And when the prophets are using it, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of a buzz phrase for judgment and the deliverance of evil. So it's a, it's a phrase, but what the disciples want, <laughs> they, wanna, they want some specifics. Like, how long is a little while? Where are you going? When are you coming back? How is all this going to hold? And Jesus is not going to give them specifics. So uh, verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. 
Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. So the world, I said lots of different Greek words for world. The one that's used here in the context, it refers to those who are alienated from God and it seems pretty particularly to be focused on the Romans uh, and the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders that caused Jesus so much trouble, the Pharisees. So um, he says, look, in a little while, things are going to get bad. I'm telling you now, again, right, that uh, the things that the world is going to be excited about, those alienated from God, the fact that I am going to be arrested, that I'm going to be crucified, this is going to make them happy. This is going to make you very anxious. Um, but... Uh, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So then things are going to change. I'm going to win. I'm coming back. I'm going to prevail, right? You don't have to panic. I've got this. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. And then he uses the analogy of childbirth, which is a common Old Testament analogy uh, about a woman in childbirth, and it's, it's hard, and it's painful, and it's, it's, it's uh, stressful, but then there's rejoicing, then there's a victory, then there's, then there's something to be excited about. Uh, verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her hour has come, but when her, out, but when her baby is born, she get, um, when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy, that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take you away. No one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So, there's a lot of people that misuse this passage. They take it out of context. In particular, uh, sort of the prosperity preachers on TV that, are, that want a, a new, bigger jet. And they're always saying that, um, you know, ask and, um, and you will be given. So, um, look, the, the focus here isn't on what they ask for. It's on asking in Christ's name. So this is the first time that Jesus has said that that's what needs to happen. So we just, you know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard people pray and then they pray in your name, in Christ's name, in Jesus' name we pray. All right, so that's, that comes from this. Now, the way it gets used, it can almost feel like it's sort of an abracadabra magic term that if you put that on the end of it, then everything happens. That's not really the, the gist of this. The gist of this is that we are represented. We come before the Father in the Son. We enter into prayer. We come into the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ. So if, if, you, if you look at how people think about praying, and just about everybody prays, right? I mean, not just Christians, but Jews and Hindus and Muslims. Uh, atheists pray. Uh, they don't necessarily think of it as prayer. They don't call it prayer. And, you know, I've got some atheist friends that say, yeah, I've, you know, I talk to myself every once in a while. Or, you know, you're trying to connect with anything or the universe or just get the planets to align or something. Yes, you're, you're hoping, even though you sort of know it's not true. Well, just about everybody prays. And, and 
if you listen to the teaching on prayer, you listen to people think about the likelihood that their prayers are going to be answered, it pivots around two things. One, the merit, the goodness, uh, the hard work, the efforts of the person praying. So, I, God, I'm, I'm fasting so that I, you especially have to pay attention to me now, or I've been good, or I haven't been good. I parked in handicapped parking, or I did this, or I was just speeding. God isn't going to answer my prayer because I'm not worth it. And then the second thing that prayer pivots on is the disposition of God. Is God predisposed? Is he in a good mood? Is he likely to grant this request? So, what Jesus teaches here is that you know, that's, not, that's not the way to think about this. Like, we are coming not on our own merit. We are coming on the merit of Jesus. We are praying in his name. We have no rights to come before God the Father. We're not members of this club on our own, but we are with the member. We are with Jesus and and God loves Jesus, and so we get in, we are, we are adopted when we come to, to faith in Christ, put our faith down on Christ, we are adopted into uh, his good graces, and we have his ability to ask the Father for things. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Now is your time of grief. Verse 25, though I, have been, um, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. So as I noted, Jesus is not answering the questions that they want answered. He's using uh, certain kinds of teaching devices, parables, stories. He's doing other things. He's not speaking as clearly as they would like. Jesus will use different methods of teaching at different times. But he's saying, eventually, you will know clearly what it is that I'm talking about, and, and that will be what you're after. Um, uh, in that day, you will ask my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you, and because you have loved me and, and have believed that I came from God, I came from the Father and entered the world now I am uh, leaving the world and going back to the Father. So he's saying, look, it's not that I've got to win God over to you because, uh, because you know, God is against you. God loves you. God is for you. I am going to, I, and God knows what you need, but I am coming and I am going to, you, on the basis of my work, you enter into this relationship. And then we get this verse 28, which is the key to the whole passage here. And you will, you will never see more theology crammed into fewer words than we get in verse 28, where he says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So four things to note here. One, I came from the Father. Jesus is saying, don't miss this, because if you want peace, you're going to have to understand what Jesus is saying right here. I came from the Father. Like, I'm different than you are. My life didn't begin at conception. I pre-existed the incarnation. I am God. You're not. 
I existed before time began. Everything that has been created has been created through me. I'm not simply an example. I'm not simply a prophet. I'm not simply a moral reformer. I'm not simply a wise teacher. I'm God. So he's, he's saying that things are going to get bad. You've got to understand some things here. I came from the Father. Philippians 2 is sort of, you know, the, the go-to passage here on this. Uh, Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to. Jesus, before he was born, was God from eternity past. He enters time and space, which is what he says next. I entered the world. He, while remaining fully God, becomes fully human. This is a mystery. We cannot understand it. The dual nature of Jesus, fully God and fully human at the same time, is beyond our labor grade. It's like the Trinity. One God in three persons. With, with Jesus, it's one person with two natures, divine and human. And, and this gets spelled out and sort of teased out and talked about more uh, in, in this addendum that goes on to the Nicene Creed that we call the Chalcedonian uh, definition, where he talks about the, how, how can we talk about Jesus who is God and man at the same time, these two natures, that how does that work? It's not that he's half God and half man. It's not that he's God one minute and man the next. It's not that he's, he's God in a human shell. You know, you, you, you get the theologians teasing this out. But Jesus is saying, look, I came from God. I entered the world. You uh, may have heard of the name Dorothy Sayers. She is one of the members of the Inklings, this group C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and all those guys had. They, they, they were writers and they'd get together and, and, and read each other's writings and encourage each other and all that. So Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, uh, was part of the Inklings. And she wrote a bunch of different kinds of things. She would write newspaper columns. She wrote a play. Uh, she wrote uh, theology. Uh, and, and she wrote a bunch of detective novels. So the, the protagonist in her detective novels is Lord Peter Wimsley. And, um, and so... If you, read, uh, if you read these detective novels, and there's a series of them, you, you realize that at a certain point, Dorothy Sayers introduces a character. So her protagonist, uh, Peter Wimsley, uh, is lonely. And so she introduces a character, Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane just happens to be one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And she just happens to write detective novels. So you don't have to, you know, go full Freudian here to figure out. She is intersecting. She is, she is putting herself, writing herself into the story. Right? And lo and behold, uh, Harriet Vane is the love interest for Peter Wimsley. So Sayers scholars note that uh, part of what Sayers is saying here is this is what Jesus does. He creates a world. He loves his character. <laughs> he writes himself into the story to help the character. That's what she's done. She's created a world. 
She loves the character. She writes herself into the story. Jesus shows up. I entered the world. I, I came from the Father. I entered the world. The third thing here in verse 28, now I'm leaving the world. So he's talking here about his death. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about going to the cross on our behalf. That's why he shows up, born to die. And uh, it's just worth stepping back and noting, he's not very dramatic about this. Like he doesn't say, I'm about to be arrested, manhandled, beaten. I'm about to go through a series of mock trials. I'm about to not get justice. I'm about to get beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross and die. He doesn't say that. He just says, uh, now I'm leaving the world. Right? So to the extent that you want a settled heart, right, a quiet soul, that non-anxious presence, I mean, we're, we're looking at Jesus. Now, as we move further into John, Jesus is going to get anxious. Like when we go to the garden, right, he's going to be very agitated. And he is going to ask for help. And he's going to pray and, and break out in, in sweat, drops of blood. And on the cross, he's going to be anxious. He's going to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, right? He is about to become sin. He's about to represent us. But here we have an example of, of Jesus with the right, uh, before he becomes, uh, you know, before he takes on sin, he is very settled. He's got, he's got the overview of what's happening. It's just a very statement. I mean, any, look, there's lots of people that can take a problem on a scale of one to 10, the problem is a two, but they talk about it like it's an eight, right? And there's a lot of chicken littles running around saying the sky is falling. There's a lot of people that panic. And, and what, what we're looking for are people who can take an eight and make it a four and then talk about it like it's a two and help everybody else, you know, they can be that non-anxious presence. Jesus is that. He, and he says, I'm leaving the world. And he says, and I'm going back to the Father. So after his death and resurrection, there will be 40 days during which Jesus will walk on earth before his ascension, before he ascends into heaven. Luke 24, we read that during those 40 days, Jesus will explain things to everybody. So he will, uh, he's starting with the book of Moses, he will explain how the, the scriptures pointed to him. He's explaining how the Old Testament was about him. He's, he's explaining all of that to them. Uh, and then he ascends with a physical body. Right, so he, he rose physically from the, day, the grave. The life that God promises, his eternal life, is not, it's, it's not some whispery, vaporous, ethereal, never-never land. It's not, just, it's not just spirit. Right? Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. He, he has a physical body. The body comes back from the dead, and then he rises physically after 40 days into the presence of God the Father. He remains fully God and fully human for the rest of eternity. And, uh, and, and so he ascends. If, if, if the doctrine of the ascension is sort of new or confusing to you, uh, a couple weeks ago I had a chance to interview um, 
interview a, uh, a theologian, pastor, who did his doctoral work on uh, the Ascension and how the Ascension should uh, shape us. And that's a podcast, so if you go on the website, you can, you can listen to that discussion. Reading on. Then uh, Jesus' disciples said uh, to Jesus, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. To which Jesus replies, um, <laughs> do you now believe? Uh, there's irony here because he's like, yeah, no, you, you really, you have no idea what's coming. If you understood what was coming, right, you, you wouldn't panic in about an hour, which is what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to cut and run. Everybody's going to scatter and I'm going to be left alone. Uh, verse 32, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. Uh, and then here we get the word peace. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So um, what are we supposed to hear here um, the disciples are saying that they understand what's going on. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. Uh, you think it's going to be easy and quick. And I'm telling you, it's going to not be easy and it's not going to be quick. You don't understand what's going on. But that's sort of nothing new. Uh, what, what, is, what is new about this passage? Like, what, what's the, what can you take home? Um, I thought for a while that maybe the, the, the take-home Velcro on this passage would be talking about hardship um, because Jesus again is saying it's going to be hard and it's just worth stating that everybody seems to always be surprised by hard. So um, we shouldn't be surprised by hard. Two weeks ago, we looked at hardships and trials and talked about that. It's, this world is broken and we're broken and we got problems and we should expect problems. We should expect persecution. We should expect trials. Jesus is telling us, it's going to get hard. You ought to expect hard. So I think I've already done that. It's, it's important to note that some of you, you know, stumble in on a Sunday morning and your life is really hard and you are hurting and you're looking for hope and encouragement and uh, you, need, you need to know that God knows and that God is for you and, and absolutely, yes. The, there's, there's worldviews, philosophies, uh, other religious systems that basically say if, if you're facing hard, uh, you're doing something wrong. Uh, if you're facing hard, uh, you're, you're living in an illusion. Uh, evil and bad is just an illusion. It's not true. Uh, if you face hard, you should just have a stiff upper lip. You should just muscle through it. You know, the Bible doesn't go down that path. The book of Psalms is very clear as well as lots of other places, but the book of Psalms is very clear that, that hard is hard and in being broken and saying as much and lamenting evil and talking about suffering and all that is, is what God does. We don't get answers to all the questions that we have about hard and trials, but we know that God understands and that Jesus shows up, right? He leaves perfect and comes to be among us on our behalf. So I thought about that. I, I, th I decided to go a different direction and to say, if, if you want 
contentment, peace, inner quiet, right? If you want that non-anxious soul. I think what we are seeing here is that we absolutely have to understand who Jesus is and what he did, and we have to focus on that. It's right doctrine, right thinking about Jesus that is going to get us through the difficulties and the trials that we have. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I'm coming back for you. Take heart, I've got this. Take heart, this ends well. You're gonna have troubles. Take heart, I've got this. Now, I think we've got to understand two things for this sort of leaning into this doctrine to work. One of them is that hard is often good. We don't think of it that way, generally. We don't like hard. But hard is often what helps us get better. Hard can just make us bitter, not better. We can mishandle hard, and hard can be trouble. But hard can make us soft. If you, if you spend the week in bed, you could say that you're resting and you will be ready to go when you get out. The fact of the matter is, no, all the muscle tone goes away and you go, oh, like during that rest, <laughs> I got soft. I got weak. And during the gym, when I'm exhausted, I actually was getting stronger. Like I thought that rest was making me stronger. Rest was actually making me weaker and hard was what was helping me get better. So it's, it's challenging to understand that. But look, God is more concerned with our character. God is more concerned with our heart than he is with our comfort. And so oftentimes we end up facing difficulties because it's a little bit of a theological conundrum to talk about whether God causes it or allows it, but uh, there's no doubt that God is leveraging it. So I, I, uh, I was listening to a sermon on this passage a while ago, and uh, it directed me to a book that was written uh, by J.I. Packer 50 years ago called Knowing God. Sort of a sort of a classic. Everybody was reading it back in the in the 70s. I come to faith, you know, 80s and read the book. And uh, at the end, there's this chapter that talks about our inner trials. And uh, and the the uh, Packer references this hymn that was written by uh, John Newton. So John Newton writes Amazing Grace. John Newton is the slave trader who eventually comes to faith, uh, becomes a pastor, leads William Wilberforce to faith, writes Amazing Grace, all of that. So he wrote another hymn, and I went and, and looked up this other hymn. And uh, it, it lays this out very well. So let me just read these four of the seven stanzas to you. Uh, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I asked God, I prayed, God, help me to be better, deeper, have that sense of peace, be, be more like Christ. 
I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. I asked for this, I got this. I asked for peace. I asked that I would know grace. I asked that I would be more like Christ. He made me see how broken I am and I was uh, assaulted. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. You ask for this, I'm giving you this. This is what it looks like to get this. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. So the challenge is that we often don't get better unless we get knocked down. We often don't come to understand that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And so the things that we are relying on, good things, often get taken so that we can get better. So the classic, uh, and, and we're going we're gonna to end um, singing this song, but the classic song that captures this, not the one I just read, this was a, a, a song uh, written by this guy named Stafford who was from Chicago. Life had gone very poorly. His business had failed. And uh, they were looking for a respite. So he put his wife and his three daughters on a ship. This is 1874. Uh, they're sailing to Europe. And uh, a storm comes and the ship sinks. His wife survives. The three girls die. And uh, they come back, she comes back, and you know, he gets a telegram, all is lost uh, from her. And they're devastated, right? I mean, you, I was going to say you can imagine, but you, we can't imagine. We don't even want to try and imagine losing three children. In a, you can't imagine. So uh, he and she have this option of believing that there is no God or believing that God is bad or that God is against them. Or saying, okay, I do not understand what's going on, but I know the character of God. I know he has withheld no good thing from me. And I know that Jesus promises that he's got this. It's good. He told me it was going to get hard. <laughs> I didn't think it was this. And he said he's got this and this will end well. And so he is the one that writes this hymn, It is well with my soul. And uh, you've got this line in there, when sorrows like sea billows roll. I mean, you, you can understand somebody who's just lost their family in a storm. When, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot they has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You have choices of what you think about and how you interpret what's going on and what you're going to put your weight down on. And, and, and the way to peace Right, is to look at Jesus, who he is, and what he has promised, and to rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for these uh, final words to the disciples upon which we focus uh, our own heart. And uh, we don't want trouble, but we do want to get better. We want to be more like you. We want to have rough edges uh, refined. We want to have that sense of deep abiding in you and resting in you and having that settled heart, that quiet mind. So um, we pray that you would sustain us as you grow us. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen.